Thank you, Cliff. If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 1 and going through verse 15. Continuing our series, going through the book of Mark, verse by verse, passage by passage. Mark 15, starting in verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. There is a point in the movie The Princess Bride where everything looks like it's going wrong. The king has died, and before the following dawn, the princess Buttercup is married to the evil prince Humperdinck. At noon, she meets her subjects again, this time not as their princess, but as their queen. And then the movie stops. Everything comes to a halt. The young, sick boy, who up to this point hasn't seemed that interested in the story, interrupts. He says, hold it. Hold it, Grandpa. You read that wrong. She doesn't marry Humperdinck. She marries Wesley, the hero. I'm just sure of it. After all that Wesley did for her, if she does not marry him, it wouldn't be fair. Well, who says life is fair? Where's that written? Life isn't always fair, Grandpa snaps back. I'm telling you, you're messing up the story. Now get it right, the kid shouts. And I have to confess, when we get to this section in the book of Mark, when we get to these texts, I often feel a lot like the boy in The Princess Bride. You're messing up the story, Mark. You're getting it wrong. This can't happen. This can't be how it ends. It wouldn't be right. When we read the arrests, the trials, eventually we'll get to the crucifixion and death of Jesus. If we're invested in the story, it feels as if this isn't what's supposed to happen. It feels like this can't be what goes down. We're surprised by what we don't expect to happen. And from today's text, we can see four surprising gospel reversals. The first surprising gospel reversal in today's text that we'll see is that it's a non-believer who ultimately acknowledges Jesus as the king of the Jews. Look at the first two verses. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. The chief priests and the elders and the scribes, they had already completed their sham trial through the night to convict Jesus of blasphemy. 
But because of the timing of these events during a Jewish Holy Week, because of their position as operating under the authority of the Roman state, because of their fear of the crowds who followed Jesus, they now had to hand him over to Pilate, the Roman governor. He was the one who would have to execute the sentence against Jesus. And we saw last week that these men who supposedly knew the God of the Old Testament better than anyone on the planet, who supposedly served him by leading his people according to his law, they had broken his commands by convicting an innocent man under false testimony and sentencing him to death for having done no crime. They called him a blasphemer for telling them the truth, that he is the Messiah and Son of Man who will come on the clouds in glory. They should be the first to fall at Jesus' feet, and yet they're the first to condemn him. But now that their judgment is passed, they have to hand him over to Pilate. Pontius Pilate would have to have the final word on what would happen to Jesus. And Pilate was far from being a Jewish lapdog. He was a brutal, ruthless man. He hated the Jews. He hated their religion. He hated their God. He merely tolerated them because they were the people that he was sent by Caesar to govern. He had a very short reign, and it was filled with conflicts with the Jewish people, and he was eventually removed from his power, basically for dealing with them, the Jews, too harshly, one too many times. So he didn't want to just accept their verdict. He had to conduct some sort of questioning of his own to determine the punishment that he would hand down. He couldn't just say, well, you guys want me to kill him, therefore I will. He had to come to that conclusion on his own. The religious leaders had convicted Jesus of blasphemy for claiming to be the Messiah without coming to overthrow the Romans. But now that they needed Pilate, the Roman governor, to kill him for them, they had to convince Pilate that Jesus was a threat to the Romans. They didn't like him because he hadn't come to overthrow the Romans, and now they had to convince the Romans that he had come to overthrow them. So Pilate's question, are you the king of the Jews? That gets straight to the point. To declare oneself the king of the Jews would be to functionally to declare war, to declare a revolution against the Romans, because the only king they're supposed to have is the emperor, Caesar. So while the chief priests and scribes and elders should have been calling Jesus their king, they should have been acknowledging him to be the Messiah, the son of man who not only is king now, but will return as the king in his glory. They never do that. It's Pilate who says the quiet part out loud. And Jesus just answers his question by pointing back to the question itself. Am I the king of the Jews? Didn't you just say so? I haven't said it, but now you are. You're telling it to me. Between this acknowledgement and what Jesus told the high priest last week, he's finally making clear that he is the Messiah. It was a secret that he had kept throughout the book of Mark. He kept telling, don't tell anyone what I did for you. Don't tell them that I healed you. Don't let them know who I am. And now he is telling the people who matter as clearly as he can who he is. He's finally making it clear that he is the Messiah and Son of God who has come to rule and to reign over his people. And Paul calls what Jesus says here the good confession when he refers to it in 1 Timothy 6.13. That Jesus is the king is the good confession. But when we're reading this story, we wouldn't expect Pilate to be the first one to call Jesus the king of the Jews. To acknowledge that fact. You've got the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they're all there. Jesus' followers were there. They all abandoned him. No one's calling him the king of the Jews until Pilate says it. Are you? Yeah, I am. You just said so. And yet, in this gospel tale, Jesus is called king by those that you would least expect. 
Pilate was a hard man with no love for the Jews or their God. He was outside the promise of God's people, and yet he's the one who calls Jesus king. And we wouldn't expect a non-believer to be the first to do that. We also wouldn't expect the accused to be silent during his trial. That's the second subverted expectation in our story today. The second surprising gospel reversal that we'll see. The accused isn't supposed to be silent. Picking up in verse 3. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. They had accused him of many things and none of them were true. But they hurled the accusations at him all the same. Even Pilate here was drawing attention to it all. Aren't you going to say anything? Aren't you listening? Didn't you hear what they just said against you? Jesus, what is your defense? The chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they must have really been letting Jesus have it. They must have really been laying it on thick. But Jesus gave no defense against them. Verse 5. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Even after all the lies, even after all the hate, all the venom they were surely spewing at him, he didn't open his mouth anymore to defend himself. He didn't try to mount a defense, pointing out all the ways that they were wrong. And that's not what's supposed to happen, right? He's on trial. The trial is supposed to be fair. The innocent are supposed to be acquitted. When they lie about you, you're supposed to object. You're supposed to provide counter evidence and to refute their claims. But you can't do any of that unless you open your mouth. You have to speak. Not only that, if Jesus would have spoken, everything was set up for him to be able to get out of this. Everything was set up for him to be able to declare it innocent and to leave. He is, first of all, actually innocent. Their testimony is conflicting with itself. We saw that last week. They are so obvious in their plan that Mark tells us later that Pilate knew exactly what was going on. He knew they were doing this out of envy. And Pilate, knowing that they had no good motive for doing this, would rather stick it to them and to say, no, I'm not going to kill the guy you want me to kill, than to actually kill them. He would rather stick it to the religious leaders than to do what they've asked. And above all of that, Jesus is God. He can do whatever he wants. He can make Pilate set him free. He can free himself. And yet, in this moment, in this time, When all it would have taken was one word, he remained silent. He didn't speak. He doesn't open his mouth just as it was foretold in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant passage that we've seen over and over in the book of Mark. Isaiah 53 verse 7 says this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. You see, opening his mouth may have gotten him out of his legal trouble. But Jesus' goal here wasn't to get off on his charges. His goal was to receive the sentence. He wanted to be crucified. His goal was to get to the cross. The innocent aren't supposed to be silent when they're on trial. They're supposed to speak and to prove their innocence so they can go free. And Jesus didn't do that because going free wasn't his plan. It wasn't God's plan. Going free was never an option for him. He was going to the cross, whatever it took. And in this instance, it took him being silent. The innocent are supposed to go free. But you know who isn't supposed to go free? The guilty. Those who have committed their crime. 
And yet, that's another surprising reversal in today's text. The guilty aren't supposed to go free. Verse 6. Now at the feast, he, Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. You see, Barabbas was guilty. That's actually Barabbas' defining trait. Apart from his name, all we know about Barabbas is that Barabbas was guilty. He was a rebel. He had been a part of, maybe even most likely leading an insurrection against Roman rule. And that may have even been why Pilate was in town. It was a holy week, a festival where there were a lot more Jews around than normal. So you're even more likely to have them riled up in their religious fervor. Even more likely to have them see, to have them try to test if they can overthrow the Romans real fast while they're all gathered together. And Barabbas was not a peaceful rebel. He wasn't part of a movement practicing civil disobedience. He wasn't staging sit-ins at a local diner. He wasn't Martin Luther King writing letters from the Birmingham jail. He wanted the Romans overthrown, and he knew if that's what I want, in order for me to get it, I'm going to have to crack some skulls before I get there. While the Jewish leaders are trying to prove Jesus was a revolutionary zealot to Pilate, Barabbas actually was a revolutionary zealot. Pilate knows what rebels against Rome look like. So he knows this silent Jesus standing in front of me, that's not it. He's not one of those crazy revolutionaries. He's not one of those guys fomenting rebellion. He's not one of those guys being violent in the streets. But Barabbas? The rebel in prison who committed murder in the insurrection. Yeah, I could see that. I could see him doing that. Barabbas' guilt is his defining trait in this story. In fact, the only other detail we have to go off of Barabbas is his name. Barabbas. If you remember back to Mark 10, just before Jesus entered Jerusalem, he healed a blind beggar. And his name was what? Bartimaeus. And that name meant son of of Timaeus. So Barabbas is Bar, son of Abbas, or more simply, what we would hear it as Abba, father. He was son of father. And that might be the worst name I have ever heard in my life. Who in here is not son of father if you're a male? Daughter of father. You could give that name to pretty much anyone, right? Everyone's a son of a father. So other than his guilt, Barabbas was no one. He had no name. He had no identity. Outside of the revolution and his murder, we had nothing else to go off of. He was a nameless murderer revolutionary, a rebel. And this is conjecture on my part. This may not be something that's actually true. But it could be the reason he wasn't named by something that mattered was because they didn't know who his father was. They knew he's son of a father. They don't know son of which father. He had no identity. He had no heritage. He wasn't simply a nobody. He functionally had nobody. All we know about him is that he deserved death. That's what Barabbas gets. Barabbas is a violent, terrible man who deserved death. He was guilty. And yet, what happens in this story? Barabbas is set free. Pick it back up in verse 8. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. 
And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. The crowd knows the deal. They've been waiting. They've been expecting Pilate to offer a prisoner for them. So they initiate the conversation. They're asking Pilate to do what he usually does. Say, hey, that thing you do when we gather at feasts. Well, we are gathered at a feast. Do that thing. It is now time for you to release for us a prisoner. And Pilate, trying one last time to avoid giving the religious leaders what they wanted, he offered to set free Jesus. He said, okay, I'll free someone for you. How about Jesus, the king of the Jews? He knew what was happening, that he was being used as the errand boy, used as the executioner for the chief priests who couldn't kill Jesus themselves. He even knows why they want him dead so bad, out of envy. But they're able to manipulate the crowd to have Barabbas released instead. You see, the crowd may have already been filled with other supporters of the insurrection, other people who were already there hoping to get Barabbas released from the get-go. And the chief priests would have certainly preferred a free Barabbas to a free Jesus. You see, Barabbas was guilty of killing Romans and treason against Rome. Barabbas was their kind of guy. Barabbas was their kind of leader. Their kind of Messiah they were looking for. They wanted someone who was violent and strong, who would give them what they wanted by force. They didn't want the suffering servant Messiah, who wouldn't defend himself even when he was accused. And so the guilty Barabbas is set free. The rebel, the murderer, He is on death row for crimes that he actually committed, and he's just waiting for his crucifixion. So imagine now if you're Barabbas. The guards come in as they do every day. They've got their keys. They unlock the cell. You assume it's time probably for another beating, another flogging. Maybe even it's time for your crucifixion. And then they do the strangest thing. They take those same keys, and they not only unlock the cell... But they unlock your shackles, too. These are Roman soldiers. You are a centurion killer. They may have even known who you killed in the insurrection. You deserve death. And everyone knows it. And yet, as they're leading you out of the prison, you ask them what's going on. Why are they doing what they're doing? They say, Pilate set you free. You see, the crowd asked for you to be saved. The crowd wanted Jesus to be killed instead. Killed in your place. This Jesus, who maybe you have never heard of, is now the entire reason that you're alive. The entire reason you're still there. The entire reason you're free. Because Jesus wasn't released, Barabbas is. And that's not supposed to happen. The guilty aren't supposed to be acquitted. The guilty aren't supposed to be declared innocent. The prisoners are not supposed to go free. A murderer can't be anything other than a murderer. A rebel can't be anything other than a rebel. The offense is too great. The consequences are too severe. Death is the only option for a sinner like Barabbas. Right? Isn't that what he gets? He deserves it. But the gospel isn't about what we deserve. It's not about getting what's coming to us. We have no idea if Barabbas turned his life around. We have no idea if he followed Jesus who was crucified in his place from that day forward. But we do know exactly what happens to sinners when Jesus is crucified in their place. 
We know exactly what happens to guilty people when God declares them innocent. Barabbas may not have deserved to be set free, but neither does anybody else. Neither do we. We don't get what we deserve. When we read this text, I do think it's good and right to acknowledge the natural injustice here. The tragedy that the innocent and lovely Jesus is crucified while the objectively evil, the objectively bad Barabbas is set free. But we also have to marvel at the gospel picture of what's happening. You see, I am Barabbas. I was a slave to sin. I was a dead man waiting for my sins to be carried out. I was evil. I was rotten. And I was wicked to the very core of who I was. I hadn't murdered anyone yet. But with the anger in my heart, Jesus says I might as well have. I may not have tried to overthrow the government. But what I had done was far worse. You see, I had tried to kick the king of the universe off of his throne. So that I could rule my life in his place. I was a rebel against his rule. I refused to follow his laws. I was his enemy. And rather than giving me what I deserved, and rather than handing to me the sentence that was just, Jesus took my place. I was a sinful nobody. The king of the universe let me go free while Jesus died for me. He gave me life in the place of death. He gave me beauty for my ashes. Joy rather than my mourning. Praise rather than despair. That's the gospel. Barabbas. The sinful son of a nameless father. Is given life. And the opportunity to be a child of God. The son of a father can be the son of the father. That's the gospel. No matter how wicked we may be, no matter how little we deserve it, no matter whether it makes sense to anyone else looking at it, the vilest, the worst, the terriblest people we could possibly be or meet can be set free through the substitute of Jesus in their place. That's why we gather. That's why we're here in this room right now today. That's why we worship. That's why all these reversals happen. By rights, the guilty shouldn't be set free. And yet God does it anyway. Out of his love for you and me and his people, his children. And that brings us to the final surprising reversal from today's text. You see, the innocent aren't supposed to be crucified. The innocent aren't supposed to be crucified. That's not what's supposed to happen to Jesus. He's supposed to be crowned. Verse 12. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. Pilate sees the insanity here. What do you mean? You you want me to release Barabbas? He's a bad man. He deserves what's coming to him. If I release Barabbas instead of Jesus, what do you want me to do with Jesus? What am I supposed to do with this innocent man? And that question was Pilate's biggest mistake. You see, once you ask the crowd for suggestions, you kind of have to take them. Once you get a mob riled up looking for blood, when they ask for blood, you have to give them what, you, what they want, or you're going to end up with a lot more bloodshed. 
So when the crowd cries out, crucify him, Pilate really doesn't have much choice, does he? He tries anyway, though. He points out the obvious. What do you mean crucify him? Why? What has he done? What evil has he taken part in? What crime has he committed? And yet they don't care anymore. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Jesus is the king of the Jews. The crowd that gathered on that day should have been gathered together to crown him as king. To praise him as king. To worship him as the Messiah. To praise him as God. He should have been crowned. Instead, he was crucified. Verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Though he was innocent, Jesus received the death penalty. Though he was king, he was killed. And that's not what's supposed to happen in stories, is it? It feels like Mark is telling it wrong. But I think the reason we hear this and think it sounds backwards, it feels inherently wrong. Yes, I think there's a a real and true justice aspect of it that we have to deal with, we have to think through. But the reason I think it sounds backwards to us is because we forget what the point of the story is. It's not a story about people like us. It's not a story about good versus evil where we don't know who wins. It's not a rom-com with twists and turns that are meaningless. It's the greatest story ever told about a God who is redeeming a people unto himself. He's saving people from their sins. You see, it looks like he's losing, but he's winning. It looks like everything's going wrong for Jesus. Like everything's gotten away from him. Like the hero is about to fail. And in that instant, what's actually happening is that he has won. The sentence has been given. He got what he wanted. He's going to the cross. He was always going to the cross. He was always headed there. We hear the story and think, oh no, the hero's dying. And he's reading it. He's telling it and saying, oh yes, the hero is dying. For you. For me. That's exactly what's supposed to happen. When we start looking at the story with that goal in mind then we realize everything's happening exactly as it's supposed to. A non-believer has to declare him king because he is king. But if his own people had accepted him, if his own people had declared him as king, he wouldn't have died that he might redeem those same people from their sins. Pilate calls him king as a non-believing Gentile so that now we Gentiles who did not believe may call him king in worship rather than mockery. He has to be silent before his accusers because if he gets acquitted, he doesn't get crucified. He gives us the example to follow for how to endure unjust suffering for the name of God. A murderer has to go free because that's the point of everything that Jesus is doing. See, if Barabbas doesn't go free, then neither do we. Neither do I. An innocent man has to be crucified because if we all get what we deserve, If the innocent goes free and the guilty gets killed, then there is no redemption for us. If the innocent isn't crucified, then no one gets saved. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 23, says this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God 
and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation, as a payment by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This was the only way for him to be both just and justifier. He could have been just and Jesus goes free and we die. He could have been justifier where we get what we don't deserve, and then he's no longer just. But in order for him to be just and justifier, Jesus the innocent has to go in our place that we might be justified. And somebody has to die that he might be just. And that was the plan. Everything happened exactly as was planned from the beginning. We may be surprised by the reversals in this story, but the reversals are what ultimately save us. The guilty going free, the innocent being crucified. Without that, we are not saved. We Barabbases, we sons of nameless fathers with no identity, with no opportunity, with only our guilt. What we are given in Christ is our only shot. And what we are given in Christ is the opportunity to no longer be sons of a father, but to be sons of the Father. Through belief, repentance, faith, trust, hope in who he is and what he's done in our place. Not that we just pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and do better. Barabbas wasn't released on the condition that he no longer rebel or kill. He was released. Full stop. All the mistakes Barabbas made after They didn't matter. He was released anyway. And we have to trust and know that the sacrifice of Jesus in our place is enough to take even those sins. Not only the sins we've already committed, but the sins that we will commit. We follow him on his way to the cross. We take up our cross. We follow him as we go with him, denying ourselves. That's the gospel. That's how we respond. So now... When we transition our response to the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ through song. When we stop just hearing his words and start proclaiming his words back to him. Remember and anticipate these words that we're about to sing. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to come together to worship you, to praise you, to respond to your message. Thank you for your words and your gospel. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to hear them and now to respond to them in song. Respond to them by repentance and belief. Respond to them by a changed life. Thank you for killing the innocent and setting free the guilty. Thank you for giving us a hope and a promise and a future in you through what Christ has done. 
Help us to know that when everything feels like it's going wrong, when everything feels like it's turned upside down, it may be at that very moment that you are doing exactly what you had always intended to do and through which you might bring many sons to glory. We love you and we thank you for these gospel reversals. In Jesus' name, amen.